one. I know John already asked, but if you missed it and you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand and uh, someone will bring you one. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we love you. We are so eternally grateful for you. And I ask God that you would bless now the preaching of your word. I pray, Father, you'd keep me from being any kind of stumbling block, but just a conduit used by you and for you. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would graciously impart the seed of the Word of God in the good soil of the hearts of the people of God. And Lord, that we would be a people who, obviously so many distractions, Lord, can take us, but I pray that we are people who have set this time aside to worship, to listen to the word of God preached. That Jesus Christ might be exalted in this place this morning. That's why we breathe, Lord. That's why we exist. So let us be about our Father's business now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you think about where we left off with Joseph. I know last week we, we went to the Lord's Supper But this week, we're back in our series with Joseph. And I want you to go to verse 1 of 41. Verse 1 of 41. And I want to press this one more time. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and then it goes on about the dream. Two whole years. So you have... You have Joseph coming. He's been arrested. He's put there in the pit. But then he's put in charge of the other prisoners. And then two of those prisoners happen to be servants of the king. They each have dreams. There, after the dreams, he gives the interpretation. Both interpretations were right, spot on, given by God to Joseph. The uh, baker, uh, he was beheaded and then hung out um, for all to see. The cupbearer was restored. And remember that question, or the request, rather, from Joseph to the cupbearer, remember me. Just, just put in a good word. Remind them that I'm here. Tell them about what's happened with me here. And then we begin chapter 41 with, and two whole years, where the cupbearer never came, brought it up, whether he forgot or whether he just didn't feel like, man, I don't want to bring up that Hebrew slave guy that gave me the interpretation. Regardless, nothing was brought up to Pharaoh. And there's Joseph for two whole years with no idea what is going on. The waiting game. Remember, he's in the waiting room, trusting the Lord, seeking to be dependent upon the Lord, and waiting to see what the Lord might bring to him. Well, then Pharaoh has some pretty insane dreams. If you recall, seven fat cows that look beautiful, seven thin cows, the thin cows eat the fat cows, and he has another dream, and you've got seven grains of wheat or of some sort of, of grain, and those good seven eat the bad, or those bad seven eat the good seven. Same idea, two different dreams. He calls in all the wise guys, all of them to come in, and says, I need you to tell me what this dream means. I need all the professional dream interpreters 
to lay in front of me the meaning of this dream. They all come and they all say the same thing. Mm. And so, therefore, there is no answer and he's completely stuck. Now what? Aha, the cupbearer remembers. I would say, by the Lord's grace, the cupbearer remembers and says, I got to tell you this. When I was in the pit, there was this young Hebrew slave, and he told us the interpretation of the dream, and the interpretation perfectly came about exactly the way he said. For me, woo-hoo, and for the baker, not so woo-hoo. Pharaoh says, get him prepped, bring him to me. That's where we left off. So drop down in your Bible and look at verse 37 around that place. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. No, I'm sorry, I skipped one little piece. He is brought before him, he interprets the dream, and gives a piece of advice. I forgot we covered that last week. So he is prepared, cleaned up, brought before the Pharaoh. Pharaoh gives his dreams to Joseph. Joseph gives the right interpretation, crystal clear. Uh, There's one little piece in there I want to remind you that I just don't want you to forget. I thought it was so fascinating that Joseph actually corrects Pharaoh. Because remember, Pharaoh says, I heard that you have this interpretation, so on and so forth. And there's this 30-year-old young man who in, I don't think, any disrespect, but yet such allegiance to the Lord says, actually, only God has that interpretation. So he's talking to this guy who could slay him in a second, and there he is, right? Uh, Hey, remember I brought you from the pit. Hey, remember you're just a youngster. Hey, remember, hey, remember, hey, remember. And yet, in all of that, his reaction is actually only God can do that. The, uh, The reason I point that is, guys, that's a continual theme that you will see in the life of Joseph. This man never forgets the Lord in all of this stuff, and he's consistently giving the glory to God. He's not taking it for himself, which is so easy, and that potential of being tempted, of, being say, of coming before Pharaoh and saying, that's right, I actually do have it. You know, I am kind of the guy. That's why I told that dumb cupbearer to remind you of me. But he doesn't do any of that. Rather, what he does is he says, no, actually, that's the Lord who's, do, who's doing that, but tell me your dream. Now, remember, because there's only one person here who knows the one true living God. And it's none of your magicians, it's none of your seers, your dream interpreters. It's not you, Pharaoh. I am the one man that represents the Lord in your midst. Tell me your dream. Tells him the dream, gives him the interpretation. After gives the interpretation, lays in front of him advice of how to deal with it. Remember, the interpretation was fairly simple. You got seven years of abundance, beautiful grain and all kinds of food. It's going to be beautiful. And then after that, seven years of some of the worst famine you've ever seen in your life. So here's a good idea. Store up a pile of excess during the good seven, so that way you're prepared for the bad seven. 37, verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Can we find, uh, and Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this In whom is the Spirit of God? What a weird thing for this guy to say. Um, What does he know about the Spirit of God? And yet, that's his reaction, is the Spirit of God is with this man. 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as, drumroll please, you are. Now, 
I realize, you guys, you could read this with a pinch of cynicism and think that when Joseph is saying, what you need to do is this and this and this and this, and you need to have somebody very wise leading that. Somebody, I don't know, maybe a 30-year-old guy. That'd be a good idea, you know? And, and no, he's not dropping hints. I don't think in any way Joseph is here seeking to push himself in this place. I don't see him doing that anywhere else up to this point. That's not in his character. What he's doing is clearly giving a good, solid explanation of here's what you should do, and here's what you should do as reference to the leadership of how you're going to lay all that out. Pharaoh's conclusion, I need somebody super wise who can do that. Why not the guy who just gave me the crystal clear interpretation, the game plan of how to deal with it, and there's such wisdom upon him that myself and all the servants recognize it. So is there anybody as wise as you? What a statement. Well, if you think about that, with, think about all the people that he has brought before him, all the different people that have come, the, the wise men, the interpreters, the seers, this big batch of people, all of his servants, and he says, out of everybody, is there anybody wiser than this Hebrew slave I just brought from the pit? It's jaw-dropping to think of the drama of that moment when from the king's mouth he said, you, referring to Joseph here. So listen to this, buckle up. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, 39, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Now here, it just gets more and more and more. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. So here's what I want you guys to consider with me this morning. Here's my outlines. Very, very simple, okay? God developed Joseph, God sustained Joseph, God elevated Joseph, and God used Joseph. Developed, sustained, elevated, used. Developed, sustained, elevated, used. So first we think about this developing of Joseph. Remember, it all began back with his father Jacob. As a 17-year-old young man, God came to him in a dream. In that dream... I'll just cut to the quick. The interpretation of the dream was that his family, his brothers, his father, and his mother would bow before him. He comes and tells the dreams to his father and to his brothers. They immediately interpret the dream. There's no question about the interpretation. They say, you really think we're going to be bowing down in front of you? Ridiculous. But do you remember that little statement? See, it's some of these smaller little bits of ink in our Bibles that are so important to our understanding. Remember what it said? Jacob kept this in mind. Jacob didn't just blow it off. Why? Because Jacob's had these dreams. Jacob has seen visions. Jacob has been walking with the Lord for a long time. And so Jacob doesn't simply say, man, what is wrong with my youngest? He's just out to lunch. His response rather is, I'm not going to forget that. And I would argue Joseph never forgot it. I would be very fascinated to go talk with Joseph while he's there in prison and ask him this question. When is the last time you thought about those dreams the Lord gave to you when you were 17 years old? Have you forgotten those, or do you still have those kind of lingering in your mind and heart? 
So how did he develop him? I'm going to run through a list, and it really is a list, and it's hefty, so I'm just going to go through it kind of quickly, okay? Number one, Joseph's dreams, prophetic dreams given by God that gave him a picture of what is to come. Did he know that is what was to come? I don't know the answer to that question. When he was sitting in the pit, I kind of doubt it. Number two, Joseph's character and leadership under Jacob. We forget this piece, you guys. Do you remember Jacob sent Joseph to go out to his brothers to bring back word of how things were going? Why? Because he trusted the integrity, the honesty, the, the, the good character of his son. Joseph, I trust you to go check on your brothers and bring word back to me. It, it, leadership position would probably be too strong of a word, but nonetheless, a position of, I trust you to go keep an eye on them. Number three, intense jealousy and affliction from his brothers, and then sold into slavery from his brothers. Remember, we see this great jealousy in his brothers to the point when he's approaching them to go check on them, they say, here comes that dreamer, let us figure out how to kill him. Potent language. Then they pull him out of the pit, they say, let's make money off this deal, after all, he is our brother, (laughs) which I find so funny they say that. And then they sold him into slavery. He goes into slavery, guess what happens? Boom, put into leadership. Put in leadership in Potiphar's home and his staff. Potiphar sees, again, the great character of this man, the quality, the honesty, the leadership capability. And so even Pharaoh says, I know I bought you, I know you're a slave, but I'll put you in charge as well. I'll trust you. Remember, none of this is wasted. God's at work. He's building this up, okay? All right, sold into slavery. Now, he walked in holiness and integrity before Potiphar's wife. He walked in holiness and integrity before Potiphar's wife. We're told in the text that this happened day after day for some time where she pursued this young man, seeking to tempt him to bring him to this sexual sin. Eventually, he flees from her, his coat's left in her hand, she lies about him and bears a false accusation about him, and he's judged wrongfully, and he's put in the pit in jail. What happens in jail? Leadership again. (laughs) You see in this how this is building up? So now he's there, and it says that everything that was done in that jail was done under that, that looking over of Joseph. Again, Guys, this is an amazing story in the sense of how trusted he is. doesn't matter where he goes or what's going on. God is in the details. He's working on behalf of this young man, and so he's there in the jail. Again, interprets the two dreams. We just covered this while giving God all glory the whole time. Forgotten another two whole years, Joseph is then remembered and brought to Pharaoh And Joseph interprets and advises the king in wisdom. Now, what I want you to catch in that is very simple. Do you see that the Lord in his grace is developing the character of Joseph? This is what's fascinating, is that if you just look at the the myopic, right? You just kind of look real close at one little pocket of the story. You can go, man, that stinks. And it does stink. Uh, the fact that his brothers would treat him that way. When he's at the bottom of the pit, you don't say, Joseph, this is working together for good. It wouldn't, that doesn't sink in when you're looking at just that tiny pocket of pain 
But when you broaden that scope and you go, you know what? What's going on in all these years from 17 years old to 30? This is God in his kindness maturing this guy, growing this guy. God's love in the life of Joseph is seen in all these little different pockets where he's changing him. So from the 17-year-old that came and told his brothers and his dad, hey, you're going to bow to me someday, to 30 years old where he's been brought before the king, and his reaction is, actually only God can do that. The distance between what we see at the beginning of, well, the 17 years old to the 30 years old, what we see, brothers and sisters, is God's grace active in the difficult and the sweet details of his life, accomplishing God's purpose in his man. God is developing Joseph by grace. None of this is wasted. This is not wasted time, which is hard at times, is it not, when you're waiting? When you're sitting there and there's, there's nothing to do, quote-unquote, and you're waiting, you're waiting for the doctor to bring back the news, you're waiting at the DMV, you're waiting at Disneyland, you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting. All of that, it's not wasted. God is in the waiting. He does some of his finest tuning in the waiting. And it's no different for Joseph. God is developing him and putting him right where he has him. But the second piece is God sustains Joseph. See, this is where it's tough, all right? You read narrative. You read Old Testament narrative, New Testament narrative. And you can come away from the narrative and you can say, wow, Joseph is an amazing man, which is true. But we would be unfaithful to the text of Scripture if we never go back to see the sustaining power behind the man. What makes Joseph godly? What makes Joseph strong? What makes Joseph a guy who continues on? What on earth is going on in this guy's brain when Potiphar's wife pursues him and he says, I can't sin against God or Potiphar. What's going on there? The sustaining grace of God. Joseph is what he is by the Lord's grace. Let us be very, very careful when we read the Bible that we don't come away giving God's due glory to Joseph. That's not his. That's God's glory. God's the one who has been so incredibly active in this young guy. God's power and grace is clearly active in the life of Joseph. God's providential care is seen in the unfolding of the story. And the cool part is Joseph faithfully looks to God and honors him throughout his entire life. We must never forget, and it's just a reminder to all of us, Joseph is not a perfect man, but a redeemed man, totally dependent upon the grace of his God. All good seen in Joseph is a result of the grace of God. Now, chapter 41, 37, or 39 to 46 is the elevating of Joseph. So look down at your Bible, and I'm going to start at 41 and read through Uh, this chunk, okay? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. 
Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and he called out, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath Paneah. And he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. So listen to this list. Joseph clearly interprets Pharaoh's dreams. God's grace, was remembered by the cupbearer. Joseph gives a wise plan for the coming crisis. Pharaoh immediately appoints Joseph to be the lead on this. Joseph is placed as second in command under Pharaoh. He's put over Pharaoh's home and people. He's set over all the land of Egypt. He's given the signet ring, which the idea there is he's given the authority of Pharaoh. He's given fine linens, brand new garments, a gold chain put around his neck. He rode in the second chariot, second only to Pharaoh, all called to bow the knee before his chariot rolled by. He was set as lead over all the land of Egypt. Nothing is done apart from his consent. But then it goes on further. Well, I'll touch on in just a second. But here's what just boggles my mind. That morning, he woke up in the pit, Hebrew slave, dirty, filthy. That night, he went to bed second in command. Now, you tell me, how quick can the Lord work when he wants to? So he takes this guy from the absolute bottom, puts him to the absolute top within a day because of God's grace. Now, when you think it'd be so interesting to go see Joseph that morning and say, hey, just real quick, so you know, at the end of this day, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you bet. <clears throat> what are you selling? But it's true. That really did happen. God, in his intense grace, took from the nasty, dirty pit and put in the glory underneath the king. Now, there's two points of application that may not be the right proper word, but two things that you can draw from that text. Number one, if you're missing Christ in this storyline, read your New Testament again this week and come back to to Joseph's life. Jesus humbled himself and took on the form of a servant to the point of death. Then he did die. Then the father, uh, Paul in Philippians 2, says that he super-exalted him to his right hand. And did you notice as Joseph is going by what they call, bow the knee. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every single knee will bow before him. I'm not going to go too much into the typology. I'm going to do that at the end of this series. But just, guys, be looking for the Christological droppings all throughout Joseph's life. 
the typology of Christ and the life of Joseph, I recognize, let me just say this, I recognize no New Testament author says that, okay? I own that. But I think it is beyond, you, you cannot doubt it as you look at the Christological pieces in the Old Testament, in the life of Joseph that point to the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a second thing here too. You were in the pit. When was the last time, and I just encourage you, when was the last time you said, you know what, I want to know what the Bible says about mankind prior to Christ? What does the Bible tell me about man? We'll start at Genesis chapter 3 and move all the way through. Read what the Scripture says about you and about me apart from Jesus Christ. And then pick yourself up off the floor, because you are backbiters, haters of God, children of wrath, dead in sins and trespasses, sin continually, your righteousness is as filthy rags. You are hopeless and helpless. And then those precious, sweet passages in the New Testament, but God, but God who is rich in mercy, made you alive, called you unto himself. Peter says, he caused us to be born again to a living hope. So, I cannot help but see what's taken place in my own salvation when I see Joseph from the nasty pit. And then, you know what? You are up here with the king. Now Dan Mason has the Spirit of God indwelling him. Now Dan Mason has the inspired Word of God all the time, everywhere around him. And I recognize it as that by the supernatural grace of God. I see God rightly. I have an eternity awaiting for me with the fullness of joy. I have the presence of Christ right now in my life. I will never taste wrath. I have been adopted into the family of God. Brothers and sisters, do you recognize it? And I I just press this because we need to do it all the time, every day. We have been removed from the nasty pit of our own sin and death, but not just put into a, an okay place. That's why I want to I press this point. The elevation of Joseph in this text is so immense. No ink wasted. As he pulls the guy, he cleans the guy, he clothes the guy, he empowers the guy. Signet ring, so he gives authority to the guy. You're going to eat the best food. You're going to live with the king. You are going to be in the second chariot. People are going to bow as you go before. All of this language of Joseph, you're taken from this horrific place and you are put in glory, earthly speaking. Beloved, that's you. That's me. That's what is ours at the expense of Jesus Christ. By God's grace, he's rescued you from the pit and he's declared you son daughter, with all of the rich, glorious benefits of Christ handed to you freely at the expense of the death of Jesus. So chin up, (laughs) rejoice, exalt in him, because that's the truth of where we are at. I am so tempted to close right now, but I'm not going to. So let's go back to the text. 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, so now we're seeing the Lord use. Remember, he developed him, he sustained him, he has now elevated him, and now he's going to use him, put him to use. 
47, during the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, just as Joseph had, had said. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain and great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. So just an intense seven years of abundance. Um, Man, you you thought you saw seven pretty nice cows, Pharaoh. Well, dude, let me tell you what you're going to be looking at in these seven years. It is beyond anything we've seen before, God's grace in what he gave us in abundance in the land. Just as he predicted, right on point, just as God had said. And so in that, they collected, they saved, they prepared. Um, God gave grace to Joseph, and by giving grace to Joseph, that grace poured over to Pharaoh and poured over to all of Egypt, and we'll see poured over to all the earth eventually here. And so such an, an amount of abundance that they could not measure it anymore. Verse 50. This is so sweet. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore bore them to him. Now, there's something here that's fascinating. A couple pieces I want to draw to your attention to. Number one, uh, he was given an Egyptian wife, and he was given an Egyptian name. There's some, one, one commentator referred to it as Egyptianizing that's going on here in the life of Joseph. Zephanath Pania, it's a very hard word to translate, but the general consensus, general idea is um, God sees and lives, or God works and lives, something along those lines. Um, Asenath, um, let me find my note here. I was jotting down, thinking carefully about the, the names, if there's anything here in particular. Basically, it means daughter of the sun god. Now, that's a huge deal in their culture, in where he's been set forth, okay? So here's an Egyptian name. Here's an Egyptian wife. We're Egyptianizing you. We're pulling you in. Now, there's nothing in the text that says that Joseph took on worship of their foreign gods, per se. I don't think you could make a case for that. There's a piece here, though, that is very fascinating. Egyptian name, Egyptian wife, in an Egyptian context, and he gives two Hebrew names to his kids. Manasseh and Ephraim. I think there's a hint there as far as where the heart of this man is. So drop down, look at your Bible. Um, (laughs) 51, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The meaning of Manasseh is pretty simply forgetful or he who causes me to forget. 52, the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. This name could be translated abundant, um, fertile, fruitful. That's the idea. Now, Here's the two boys, and I just can't help but think about this. I know how it is for me, and I always want to be careful not to just apply what I think or what I feel to the text, but 
It's hard for me not to think that at some point, as those two boys are put in his arms, there's not some thought of Jacob. Because remember, I recognize, guys, that the, the, um, the favoritism shown to Joseph really, really ticked off his brothers, and it caused some great harm, and I understand that. But don't let that rob necessarily from that text. There was a sweet relationship between this man and his dad. And you'll see that uh, consistently the way he speaks of Jacob. As Jacob showed such great tender love as he gave that coat to his son, I can't help but think as he holds Ephraim and Manasseh, that thought comes across the brain. wonder how dad's doing. wonder what's going on with my father. Because I do not think, I know that the name that he gives to Manasseh, forgetful, it says he forgot his home. I believe what that means is he did not hold anything in his heart holding against them. But come on, did he really forget Jacob? No, no, he didn't forget him. What it means is he has so much joy, it has swallowed up any kind of bitter, uh, bitter um, anger or frustration left in his heart towards home. It's over. God, you have been so intensely good. Anybody who's sought to hurt me, I just, I, I, I've forgotten. It's over. It's, it's over, Lord. I'm sitting here with my wife, my two boys. I have all this power and authority. And here, this is in the moment, right? This is the test right here where he could go, I'm so glad I'm so good or I'm so glad for these gifts. But that's not the, not the testimony of this man. You will see throughout the rest of this book, brothers and sisters, he never, ever loses sight of the giver of the gift, ever. He, he, does, he does thank God. He has forgotten those who have hurt him. But beloved, he, he is so caught up with, God is the one who's done this. The Lord is the one deserving of full glory and honor for my two boys, for my wife, for this place where we're living. I was taken from the pit, and now look at everything that God has given me. Fifty-three. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. Those were good days, weren't they? 54. And the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all lands. But in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Listen to this. This is from the mouth of the king. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold Please notice that, underline it, don't miss it. Sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Just the language, guys. I, I, I don't have words that really touch the drama of the moment, but just to think of the king himself to say, go see the 30 year old Hebrew slave that I rescued from the pit. Who's 37 now? Go talk to him. Wow, really? Really? Yes, yeah. Go talk to him. 
He is wise. He's proven. He's developed. God has sustained him. God has used him so powerfully. Go talk to him. I have no worries because Joseph is on duty right now. That is God's grace in Joseph. Joseph has suffered greatly. God has broken him. God has developed him. And now he's ready and God puts him to use. Please notice this, beloved, and don't miss this point. Nobody is given grace and all these blessings so that way we can just sit in our blessings and just go, man, this is rich. This is great. Somebody bring me a coffee. That's not how this works. God in his grace has developed us for something, for for use to be worked, to, to bless God. Joseph's blessings aren't for Joseph. I mean, yes, there is that side benefit, by all means. But Joseph's blessings are there for him to be used by God and for God. And so Joseph does not simply say, hey, I'm part of the king. No, what I see in the text is a solid work ethic, just as he's had the whole time. Lord, you've given me sons, you've given me my wife, you've given me authority, you've given me all these blessings I want to be about your work and be used in your hands to accomplish your good purpose. And tons and tons and tons of lives are saved through those seven years of death throughout the land. By God's grace, through his man, perfectly on point. Now, what is so amazing, you guys, and we'll get this when we get to chapter 50, but even here in the text, you see it. You could come to Joseph in this moment and go, hey, Joseph, could you ever imagine the trail God had for you to end up here? You did not go from Jacob's robe to second in command. The Lord took you through some very interesting valleys on the way to where he wanted you for your good, for the good of many, and by his grace. Pause and consider this reality. This morning, Joseph woke up in the pit, broken and ignored. He ended that day as second in command with great authority. Joseph is now ready. Timing is absolutely everything, and God puts him to use. I guess I'm done. So, we'll... (laughs) So, let me read this quote to you because I find this fascinating. One of the commentaries, how am I doing? We're doing fine. One of the commentators that I have been using has been a guy named Henry Morris. Um, If if you're interested in a good, solid commentary on Genesis, Henry Morris has been uh, very, very good in many ways. There's some things I would not recommend uh, in there, but but a good portion of it is, is superb. Did you notice in the text it says that he sold the grain? So this is where this guy kind of shines. He brought stuff out that I just had not caught in my reading of the text. Let me read this. It's a little lengthy, but follow with me. He says, Advocates of welfareism may wonder why Joseph did not simply give the food to the people instead of making them buy it. Joseph instead maintains strict control over the supplies in order to prevent looting and waste, knowing that even the vast supplies that had been accumulated would have have to be carefully husbanded, there's a word for you, to last through seven long years of famine. 
He then sold them for a reasonable price and on the equitable basis to all who were in need of grain. Had it been given away, it would have rewarded indolence and short-sightedness. Furthermore, the grain had been acquired by lawful and fair means by devoting most of the government's taxing and buying power to it for seven years. To give it away would have meant bankrupting and probably destroying the government. Let that sink. I just thought this was interesting. It was thus perfectly right and proper for the grain to be sold, not given as a handout, to all who could afford to pay. It is reasonable to assume that special provision was made for those who were truly in poverty and unable to buy. Quite likely, they were employed on useful government service. I underline that because I'm wondering what that is. Useful government service or construction of one form or another in order to earn the necessary cash or credit to buy the supplies they needed. The people could hardly be taxed in significant amounts during the years of famine since they were producing little. So the income from the sale of grain, in effect, had to take the place of taxes during those years. This is why I recommend Morris. Not necessarily just for this point, but he draws out stuff that I'm like, oh, man, that's really good. What a point. Because I would, naturally, my expectation would be that they save up the grain and then they just throw it all out. No, 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 no. Joseph, in godly wisdom, knows the character of man and knows how that could be incredibly abused. So, here's my application for this morning. Pretty simple. I'm not sure you guys know this, but God knows what he's doing. God absolutely knows what he is about, what he's accomplishing, and he's not sucker-punched by you or any other person. Joseph was developed, sustained, elevated, and profoundly used. God in his kindness and grace is not wasting anything. He's on point. He's on purpose. Guys, he can be so trusted. And I know, I'm preaching to the choir here. I know you know that, but do you know that? That's the question i got to pose to myself. Is, yeah, I know that. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll pass the theology exam. Great. But what about on that particular day where you hit a low spot, things are going difficult, you're getting bad news, whatever. Do you know it? Do you know it in your heart of hearts? Oh, man, he could be trusted. Nothing's throwing him off. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He who is in the heavens laughs. All these passages, as he sits at the right hand of Almighty God, these are giving us information about the the demeanor of the sovereign. He's not rubbing his hands. He's not biting his nails. God, in his infinite wisdom, perfect knowledge, absolute power, sits enthroned, accomplishing all things according to his good purpose. And so the the part that is hard is I can so easily look at that half an hour and go, life is so hard. Well, Joseph in the pit could have said, life is so hard. Brothers and sisters, that's where we have to, by God's supernatural grace, broaden the scope. Okay, Lord, there's a bigger picture here than my pain. What are you doing? And not the kind of what are you doing as if shake a fist, but 
before God in a humble heart, God, what are you doing? I'm, I'm hungry to see. I want to know, Lord, what are you accomplishing? I don't know the future, but I, I am growing in absolute trust in the one who's in charge of the future. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that we would be a people about the truth. 